My guest today is founder and CEO of global partner marketing agency, Acceleration Partners. He describes himself as a serial entrepreneur with a passion for helping individuals and organizations build their capacity to grow. Under his leadership, Acceleration Partners have received numerous industry and company culture awards, including Glassdoor's Employee Choice Awards, two years running, Ad Ages, Ad Ages Best Place to Work, Entrepreneur's Top Company Culture, again, two years in a row, Great Place to Work and Fortune's Best Small and Medium-Sized Workplaces, wait for it, three years in a row, and Boston's Globe's Top Workplaces, two years in a row. Bob was also named as Glassdoor's list of top CEOs of small and medium-sized companies in the US, coming in as number two. He is a regular columnist for Forbes, Inc. and Entrepreneur Magazines, and his writing reaches over five million people around the globe each year. He is, uh, this is all that wasn't enough. He is also the author of international best-selling books, Elevate, Performance Partnerships, Friday Forward, and his latest work, How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, Simple and Effective Tips for Successful, Productive, and Empowered Remote Work. Robert Glazer, you're very welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me. I hope I can meet the expectations that you that you just laid out. I prefer the short, short bio. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is some some uh, body of work that you have. Uh, I'd, I'd like to talk to you if you wouldn't mind. Maybe start off with this: how to thrive in virtual workplaces. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit. What what prompted you to write it? Uh, so we've been remote for 14 years. Um, I, I like to say it was something that I used to, I think we used to hide. Uh, and then I found in the last year, I was getting asked to give keynotes and speeches on it. As, and as I gave this presentation, I always had a presentation around high performing cultures. I, I was never actually, I would get asked to do like remote work stuff and remote work conference. And at those point, remote work was almost this niche on its own. And, and I wasn't really like passionate about the remote work. I was passionate about sort of the culture of flexibility and autonomy that we had. I started giving this presentation. I started getting a lot of the same questions. I kept refining it. And I was like, look, I think this playbook can help people uh, rather than giving presentations, you know, five times a week. <laughs> why don't I turn it into a book? So I turned it into an ebook with my publisher in 90 days. Once I had a chance to catch my breath, I took the ebook and interviewed a whole bunch of companies. And 90 days later, I had the full, full book and we and we got it out. Mm. You said you were trying to hide it. Is that, I'm guessing, because there was a suspicion over companies or not an exception, maybe an acceptance issue over companies that were remote work, like you weren't a real company. Yeah, if like, you were so, so if you're a software company, you don't care, right? If you're in client yeah. service like us and working with a lot of blue chip brands, you know, you know, let's say you're talking to, you know, big, you know, hold the co, you know, you, you, the perception of, oh, we're at home or we don't have offices. Clearly, it didn't affect our work or our culture, but there was some there was some negative uh, bias around that. So, um, but, but it's interesting, I think, as people have seen now, I think there was a perception that people at home maybe weren't working. I, I think companies that have made the shift now have seen that actually biggest problem with remote work is getting people to turn it off and, and to create some, some separation. And, and, and how do you do that? How, how have you built that culture that's productive, but also doesn't step over the line and encroach on people's private space? 
Yeah, so that's a long answer. So, so there's some macro stuff. There's some macro stuff about our culture, who we hire for, the type of people. I don't think everyone is right for the type of environment that we have. We have a highly accountable, highly flexible work environment. Like, it's not for everyone. It sounds great, but not everyone operates well, you know, in a fast-moving, autonomous you know, if, if you like being pointed out, where are the stakes? Where do you go here? Like, it's not it's not for you. So there's some cultural elements. But then I think we had to just learn to do things really well. I always say, like, think about onboarding, like a world class company has an onboarding program where you usually don't touch your job for three weeks, you come in, you know, you go into training, you work the call center, you do this, you do the rotation, then you're dropped at your job. Most not well-run companies, you know, a person comes in, they're like, hey, Steve, follow Paul around. And, and they get, that's not a good onboarding, but they get away with that because it's in person. So that's an example where we always had a scripted two to, th we had a world-class onboarding program because we had to as a remote company, because you can't come in and have nothing to do on your first day. So, um, you know, there's practices like that. And then there's things we learned about setting up your separate office space, creating separation. I'm a big believer, I had to learn this myself in the virtual commute, like in the morning. You need the, leave your computer downstairs, leave, you know, have your coffee, read the paper, do your workout, then turn it on. Like. None of us are doctors on this show, right? So none of our patients died overnight. But if you look at that email at 10.30 or you look at that email at 7.30, you're mentally hijacked from it. And then similarly, at the end of the day, I, I started, you know, going for a walk, doing yoga. I, I needed, I was missing that, like, drive home. I was getting off a Zoom call. And this was before COVID. I was going to dinner and my three kids are all yelling. And I was like, ah, I have not had a second. What people don't miss, I think they actually miss their commutes. Um, I don't think they missed the traffic or the aggravation, but they missed throwing on the podcast, having a little transition time. So I think we, we need to build these sort of mental and physical demarcations into the day. If you design a work from home environment where it just bleeds, you know, you're at the kitchen table, you're, like it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work for most people. And, and I will say that this is the worst time I could ever think of to work remotely. So if you remotely like it now, most of our people who liked remote work really could use the flexibility. They traveled, they went to spin class with friends, they had lunch in the middle of the day. You know, it, they, they've lost all of the socialization elements that, uh, that were part of that flexibility. So um, it, it, it actually, if you liked remote work, like, and your two kids were home and you couldn't leave your house, like you're, you're probably gonna like it a lot better when that's not the case. Yeah, it's, it's interesting actually creating that buffer space between your, your home and your work yeah. And, and, and I had somebody last week talk to me about how she goes for a walk out of the house, but back again. So it's that 15, 20 minute, half an hour walk. It's really critical. Just yeah. to create the commute. She calls it commuting to work, even though it's a circle back to her home again. But I thought it was a really good idea. Yeah, it's a great time to flip on a podcast, you know, learn something like it. I mean, I'll put this analogy for your listeners. If you roll over to your nightstand, pick up your phone at 7 a.m. and like start looking at work emails, it is like someone grabbed you in your pajamas and threw you in the office. Like that is that is sort of the environment that you're creating. And I, I don't think anyone thinks that that's a great way to start their day. Hmm. So what do you advise when you onboard somebody in terms of sort of best practices so that maybe if they're not used to remote working, yeah. that they can kind of quickly grab those important yeah. best practices. So, so we coach them both, I think, on like overarching and then and then actual like, hey, here's here's the, you know, here's the bandwidth you need. Here's the computer you need. So you don't have like freezing up all day long. Here's you really should have a dedicated office space. You should not try to 
manage childcare and work. That is a recipe for disaster. So there's kind of a list of expectations and how to do it. And, and, and we say to people, now there'll be a whole class because I would say most of the people we were hiring for remote work hadn't done it before or done it a day a week. So we had to sort of assume that they had the right qualities. There, there's some qualities of the person. Like I said, if you're someone who likes group decision-making, likes to be told exactly what to do, like follow the, like it, it, it doesn't, it's not comfortable for you to be out of touch, raging extrovert. It's not comfortable for you to be like out of touch and out of sight. You're missing like a lot of your verbal cues. Um, so, so, but there's some, there, there's some best practices and, and, and just in just how they create their schedule too, like not just, sitting down and having your whole like plan when you're gonna have lunch plan when you're gonna work out like put certain work in the morning certain work in the afternoon get outside have those intervals like you don't have those cues that you have in the office where someone's like hey paul let's go grab a cup of coffee so you kind of have to build that stuff into your schedule Mm. makes sense makes sense it's those who haven't as you said need that social social angle and have been dropped into this. They're the ones I kind of worry for in terms of how they're coping with it because if you hire for it, it's different. Yeah, it's not that, and, and I want to be clear, uh, you know, because I, I do think, look, I, I, I think people have different needs and, and introverts have clearly liked this better than extroverts, but it's not like we have a company full of introverts. But mm-hmm. raging extroverts, the people who just are dying right now because they get their energy from being around people that that is literally what fuels them it's probably not an environment that you want to put them in and i'm guessing a lot of salespeople fall into that like you know what they love to do is go out there have a beer have a coffee meet people like it's going to be hard for them to recreate that in on on zoom you know you do it if you have to but i i think this is where a lot of companies are going to have to declare what they're doing afterwards they're not going to want to they're going to get some hybridy mushy thing because they're not going to want to put a stake in the ground. And, and I think that's going to be a disaster. Uh, mm. I, I said, I think hybrid workspaces can work if, if, if there's a clear set of rules of the road. I think hybrid mm. is the absence of a decision for your company is kind of a disaster. Mm. But these companies mm. are going to have to go out and say, look, we're calling people back into the office. And so, you know, if you want to work from home, that's not an option or, or we're getting rid of the office. And so if you love mm. that and, and understand they're going to lose some people, I think some people have reevaluated what it is that they like. The best thing any company can do is to declare what it really is, honestly, authentically, and, and mm. then let the chips fall where they may. Mm. Where they may. Okay. What about managing remotely? Because that's a new challenge for a lot of sales leaders as well. Is that yeah. even so? There's a, there's a there's working remotely and and selling remotely as well are two distinct things because a lot of people, certainly in in Ireland where we are, is. Uh, inside sales and also in in tech space. In, so they're selling remotely and yeah. always have been, but not necessarily working remotely. And now managers are trying to keep those employees motivated and they're working from an apartment where maybe their partner is also trying to share the same bandwidth as they are. And it's, it's an unfamiliar environment, although maybe that's changed somewhat now. And I'm just curious to know if you, from a management point of view, how you guys keep... Uh, employees engaged so that they still feel part of the culture, the company and the story? Well, a couple of things. I actually think that sales leaders are better off than any other leaders for remote work because there's something that they already do that everyone else can't figure out how to do. And that is managed outcomes, right? The sales leader doesn't care if the person makes a hundred calls and gets one sale versus the person made two calls and gets 10,000 
you know, dollars or pounds of sales. Like they're already more oriented towards the outcome culture. I find a lot of other leaders, like their primary measure of management was input. Like, oh, I can see this person here. I can see them active. They're actually not good at managing outcomes. A lot of the discussion in coaching with CEOs is I need to get my company moving to outcomes. So obviously if the person doesn't sell anything for two weeks, now I want to dig into their metrics. But I, I, I think it's figuring out the right cadence. Like is that hour meeting now a half hour, you know, online? Is it, are we reporting stuff out? Can we do that in a different way? How do we keep people sort of connected? So I, I think communication cadence and, 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 and sort of outcome orientation. Look, if you're a sales leader and you're managing to inputs, not outputs, then you already have a problem, right? Because you're just, you're, you're encouraging the grind and not the, not the result. But I, I've actually been encouraging a lot of people to think more like sales and figure out like, what is your, what is the outcome metric that you can manage your team by? Because you can't and, and empower them and figure out how often do you need to check in and inspect? So, if I say, you know, if, if I'm a sales leader and I'm managing on an outcome remotely and, and, you know, Sally hasn't had a sale in five days, well, now I got to set up a 15 minute call with Sally and let's say, let's go through your numbers and your cadence and your, and, and your yeah. books. But, but if Sally's reporting $10,000 a day, like, you know, great Sally, like, <laughs> good job. Keep going. What do you need? How can I help you? Um, I, I, so this is an area where I actually think the outcome orientation gives everyone a leg up. They're just already used to that. Yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit further with you because I, I do have a, a different perspective on yeah. it. And maybe in this, the short sales cycle where there, is, there isn't a lot of time between input and output, yeah. that might not be an issue. If you've got maybe a three-month, six-month sales cycle, uh, and if you're only, look, if you're only output-oriented, yeah. then you, it's, by the time you discover the problem, right. it's too late. And yeah, therefore, so there need, has to be an element of warning indicator. Yeah. yeah. So you, you and you can't manage outcomes. You can report them, their metrics, but you can't manage them. You can only manage inputs, and that's why I do wonder about those who are trying to maintain consistent inputs, because I know if they happen, the outcome will 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 come, and I won't have to worry about it. Yeah, and, and, and look, there could be many outcomes, right? So there's a difference between leaving a call that no one answered and having a conversation, right? I think there could be things that are demonstration of progress versus demonstration of effort, you know, and those are along the way. I mean, one of the other tactics that's good for a team is, is to, and this is good in the office, and again, probably used in sales more than anything else, but create a scoreboard, you know, create that group accountability so you don't have to get on top of everyone. You know, if everyone's putting their numbers on a scoreboard or how they're doing, there is a there is a group and public accountability rather than the boss kind of getting down there back and say, look, you know, you know, you know, John is John's made 10 calls a day and Sarah's made 40 calls a day this week like that. Just putting that up there, that will solve itself, you know, rather than it sometimes having, having to get on the phone. So I, I, I agree with you in a really long sales cycle that is tricky, but I still think there are outcomes that are methods, methods of or measures of progress rather than measures of busyness. Mm. I, I, look, there are a lot of companies going towards and you would never want to do this in sales. But but there are a lot of companies. This is a game you can't win. They're 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 using digital management, spy tracking software, looking for people being busy, and then those people are going on Amazon and buying things that move their mouse and show that they're busy. Like if if you have that war going on in your company, you, it is a zero sum game, and everyone is losing. Yeah, I have heard of somebody do that. Now she doesn't work in a private sector company. It's in a in the government sector and she's working remotely and yeah she's watching netflix and she's doing this on her mouse 
Right, because that's what's being measured. So that is, someone yeah. is saying that that mouse movements, like any organization who's looking at mouse movements as their primary metric, will get mouse movements. I mean, I really, yeah. I believe in human behavior. I, I, Charlie Munger always said, "Show me the incentive, and I'll tell you the behavior." Right. So I, I it's one of my favorite. Yeah, points. yeah, yeah. But it's also missed the fundamental point: is there's something else wrong if there's a lack of trust there that people yeah. don't trust people and or you're hiring the wrong people and they don't have an intrinsic sense of motivation for... Uh... So, someone always said to me, you know, because in a remote environment, you know, they said, uh, uh, I remember them saying that, you know, we were talking about how people leave and whether they leave and they steal stuff and they do stuff. And they said, look, if you have people always leaving your company and, and it's blowing up like that, you're either like hiring pretty terrible people or you're doing something to them to make them pretty angry. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, that, that requires a look within. Yeah. I, this is another premise. I, I believe in trust first, but leave no area for gray. So I think that's like, look, Paul, I trust you. It's your own schedule. But let's be honest, like the day that I can't find you and you didn't tell me you went on vacation or this, whatever, like you've now broken that trust. So I, I, am, I am giving you that trust, but like you have a high threshold of, of maintaining it. I think some people start off with a, an atmosphere of distrust. I think it is better to trust and then explain that that trust is not easily replaced if it is broken. That's fair. That's yeah. I I, I think people would sign up to that. Yeah. And maybe that kind of leads next to my next question, which is you've won all these accolades, best place to work, all these cultural awards. That's something else. That's not just about managing and, and, and motivating people remotely. There's something else that goes into that. What, what's the secret sauce? What's the fundamental principles that al allow you to, to win those? Yeah, so uh, we are not a great place to work for everyone. We are a great place to work for probably 2% of the people who share our values, and we put great processes and length in defining those people. So my, my definition of a great culture, I sort of paraphrase from the Gandhi quote on happiness. And it's really simple. What, 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 what you believe is what you're saying is what you're doing, right? So I, I think that there are a certain set of things that we believe, say and do. The people that come see that we're consistent. Some people might say, you know what? I, I, I actually, I'm not that, I, you guys do what you say. It's not right for me, but 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 you're not lying. You're not, you know, you, you are you are that. I just uh, I'm, I'm I'm a running, you know, I'll use the football in the U.S. football. I'm a running back, and I picked a passing team, and so I'm just not going to shine as a as a running back here. So so I, I we have a set of values and behaviors and stuff that we really believe in, and we go to great lengths to find the people that want to operate under that playbook. I think that most companies and leaders just. I, they're not authentic. They're pulling stuff off other people's walls. They're saying it. They're saying we believe in team and teamwork. And then they have an incentive system where, you know, 90% of the bonus goes to 10% of the people and it's super cutthroat and competitive. I got news for you. There are a lot of cutthroat competitive ex-athletes that if you just said, we're the place you come when you want to win, you, you, know, you, will, you will get the right people that want to play under that culture. But people just don't say that stuff they don't say it honestly so our core values are own it embrace relationships and excel and improve and and, and that combination is a certain type of per own it is most important for us if you are not the type of so explain that explain what that yeah. what those mean so own it is the type of person who just owns it they take they take responsibility they take accountability they take initiative we actually had to change it a couple years in our business from accountability because we realized that there's always things that you don't know about. We had some people who wanted to be accountable, again, almost for inputs. Like, I did everything I could do, but like, that wasn't my fault. Imagine going to a salesperson and saying, you know, they say, well, look, I can't determine where I'm going to get all of my sales for the year, so I'm not responsible. I mean, there's always ambiguity, right? You, you just, 
you own it. You say million bucks is my number and I'm going to figure out. So our people own it. Um, embrace relationships. Like it's a core thing for us. Like we're in a people business and, and, and own it and embrace relationships form this concept of interdependence. So particularly with our remote work, the people that work really well in our environment are willing to make those decisions. They'll own it. They'll do it. But they believe that they're better as part of a team. We have no brilliant jerks on our team. We, we, we have like a DNA that like spits them out. There are no lone rangers. There are no brilliant jerks. So those are the first two things. And then excel and improve. Like we believe in excellence. We have a very high standard for everything we do. And we believe in always improving it or else it won't be excellent, you know, in a year or so. So like people who like to read, like to learn, they're intellectually curious. If you're just comfortable doing the same thing for three years, you won't like our culture because the culture will start saying, why are you doing the same thing? Like how do you, you should you should make it better. So when we, we don't use personality tests or any of that stuff as a, as a, employment you know mechanism because I, I think there's a lot of bias in that but we do use it for development and communication you know different things and, and and when we get to people's personal core values and you find someone who's a shining star and we actually do personal core values with them eventually you will see that their personal core values are like have a 80 percent alignment to our company core it's just who they are so they're just doing what is fundamentally natural for them and what our company rewards is the stuff that makes them feel good and successful anyway uh, and when you look at those core values, how do you determine those in an interview process? Because some of the people can interview very well. Yeah, so we have behavioral based questions against all of those core values, multiple ones. And then uh, we actually tell the people, this is what a seven answer sounds like. This is what a 10 answer. So if anyone's going to ever uh, uh, apply, I'll, g I'll give you an example. I always say, like, if you're doing this research, then you're the type of person that, that we want anyway. But to our Excel and Improve, we might say, hey, Paul, tell me about the last time, you know, you read a book uh, or took a course or did something to get better in the last couple of years. And if you're crickets, you're not our type of person. Like our type of person would say, you know what? I took a Spanish class last year. I read this. I was having struggled with these conversations. I read this thing like they are they are someone who's just generically genetically not generically <laughs> driven to improve you know if they can't come up with a book they've read in 10 years like just not our not our guy or girl interesting you said it was two percent and now i know why because i it remember is. Statistically, that I, it is about 1.6 yeah. percent yeah because i've been shocked when asked that question i know people will listen to this are probably more likely to be yeah. in that two percent that's what they're, they're so doing that right exactly <laughs> But I've been shocked because I have been asked many times over the years to help clients say interview. I play a, a role in that interview process. And um, one of my go-to questions is always, tell me about the last sick, good sales book that you read and what right. did you take from it? And, and you're right, it's, quarter, it's crickets. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or what they'll do is, so it's a two-part question because the, I, you can see them searching their head for a name of a popular book and they'll say yeah. something like, uh, hey, Challenger. Uh, okay, well, what did you take and what did you implement from it? And that's when, oof just nothing crickets. So it, yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's a great question. And, 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 and people tell you that and yeah, it, it, I, I believe I have studied I've interviewed Jeff Smart, who's the top interview guy in the world GH Smart. I think that mo most companies interview processes are not based on any science, they're based on like 5050 math and people asking a cow or a rabbit question, particularly founders and CEOs, they have some voodoo question that has zero statistical validity. So, so my only belief after working and studying with Jeff and that it to me it is the entire interview process you need to watch. How did they prepare? How did they show up? Were they late? Were they early? Was it thank you notes with a quite like 
all of that is predictive of how that person is going to behave, not whether they said, they, you know, they say, oh, Paul, you know, tell me, where do you see yourself in five years and what do you want to do? And you tell me this great story, except you've been telling that story for 15 years and you haven't done a damn thing, right? So that, yeah. that as Jeff says, if you ask hypothetical questions, you get hypothetical answers. But here's the challenge then I see is where do you find those because you're not looking for a needle in a haystack? Well, look, that's where those awards and that's where people being drawn to our culture or seeing that it's a place they want to work. And, you know, what we, we changed a little bit, you know, building a big training program and, and being able to hire people who were drawn to the culture, who are just high aptitude and, and, and training them on our system rather than if when we had to go to the market and find candidates that already existed, it was a much smaller market. Mm. So that changed our model to hire earlier career, hire high aptitude people that met our, our things and train them. And we found that those people that we trained in our system were better, faster, rose further in the ranks than the ones we bought on the open market. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, tell me, I, I want to go back to uh, young Robert. Yeah. And tell me a little bit of, first of all, where you're from, what sort of environment you grew up in. And I'm also would like to explore with you those traits that you draw on now as a leader. Yeah. When did you first notice those? Um, <laughs> they're first in one of my report cards at five years old, but actually they weren't rewarded, I would say. So I grew up in uh, outside of Boston, uh, middle to, to as I grew up, upper middle class family, uh, super loving and supporting parents, great schools, all that stuff. Um, none of it really worked for me. Like I was very creative. I was very entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I've heard this story a lot. That that sort of environment is not super that that sort of thing is not supported, you know, in the traditional school environment. So my report cards constantly looked like we think he can do better. We think he's smart. He's not very motivated. Like I was just bored. I didn't like learning. You know, it was all about A, B, C or D. I joke around that, like with my daughter, who's now close to applying to college, you know, everything is about the tests and the bubbles. I say I'm my entire career now is about finding option E, <laughs> you know, when presented with A, nah. B, C and D. Like that's yeah. my strength. But that was not rewarded, you know, as a kid. Yeah. I was creative. I liked doing stuff. I liked business. You know, it's usually the kid that's selling homework papers, which I wasn't doing, that, you know, gets thrown out of school when someone should grab them as a mentor and say, hey, look, you actually have business acumen. Let's talk about uh, what this means. So um, I think I had leadership qualities early. Those were probably seen as a little bit bossy. I don't think that they were, you know, really reinforced. So, yeah, I struggled in school. I, 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 I really didn't pay much attention in school. I had ADD and, and I just, I, I, I was smart enough to, you know, not fail out, but it really wasn't until later that I realized I love learning. I just wasn't enjoying what I was learning. And, and I, I'm still trying to catch up for kind of not retaining, you know, 18 years of, of, <laughs> of what I learned and what I learned uh, before I went to college. Yeah. Can I assume then when you are hiring people that their school results don't matter that much as part of the process? No, I, I think there is such a culture of elitism, like, and I don't know why you go back to someone's school stuff when they've been successful in, you know, even MBA progr programs, you can be a, a president running a division of a thousand people, and then they have you go back and studying geometry you haven't used in 20 years to get into business school, where then you write your own application. I mean, you write your own references. I mean, the whole process doesn't even mimic best practices in, in business. So I actually, I, I, we have a company a little bit of underdog. Like I prefer the underdog. I prefer the person who just had no advantage and just worked their way up and out, outwork people um, 
to, to, to sort of the elite pedigree. Um, mm. I, I think our, 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 our whole company and leadership team is a bunch of second chance people who had bad experiences elsewhere. Yeah. Um, what motivates you personally? You know, I, I am very motivated and I think it's directly connected. I write a lot about how I think values and purpose connect to pain or other stuff. Like I'm very motivated to help people uh, do better and be better and figure out what's important to them and their core values. And one of my personal core values is to find a better way and share things. So I have that constant improvement, but that's why that book exists. When I figure out something and it's better, I am inherently driven to share it with other people and organizations because I, I think that I think that leadership is really a key, you know, in, in, in life. I think better leaders will create a, a, a business is a key to create improvement in the world. Better leaders and better organizations will create better outcomes for humanity. So I like when I see leaders being better and companies being better and figuring out mm. how to do remote work. So mm. a lot of the stuff that I write about is the stuff that we've figured out that's worked for us that I think is really different and trying to share those playbooks, frankly, with other people who want to implement them. Mm. Here's here's the, the what I'm really curious about. You're you've clearly achieved a lot, and you get stuff done. On one hand, and that usually requires somebody who's highly disciplined, structured in terms of how they organize their day, and etc. And then on the other hand, you're saying, well, look, I I have a short attention span. I know when I was a kid at ADD. I'm creative, and I I understand that creative people are always yeah. looking for the next thing they're working on. So how do you marry those two? The the one that's because oh look, there's a squirrel, and then the other is I have to get this book out. Yeah, I I, I think you develop the support structures. Um, I have like a OneNote file, like you wouldn't believe. Like so, it's something. It's important to me to not lose something when it comes to me, but I understand the cost of distraction. Like I see that sort of. 18 minutes to shift from one thing to uh, another. So I, I try to find a compartment for everything, a place for everything, a cadence. And, and, and when I have, you know, I have this Friday four newsletter, sometimes I'll be sitting there and I have four ideas and I pull over from my run and I dump them all in the one note because I don't want to lose them. And then I go back to, you know, whatever I was doing. So, so a lot of those things, the problem when you have that kind of brain is it comes and goes. So I try to just stop, record, put it in the for next week, for next month, for next quarter. And, and I try to, I create the structures around me, the scaffolding that that you know make sure that I uh, perform. Um, I, I believe in the concept of time blocking for calendar, which is you do not leave your calendar open. You determine how you want to spend your time. Like my calendar is never free. There is time that I am designated to not be working. There is time that is designated for meetings. There is times that are designated for workouts. But people are not allowed to just go grab my calendar because then at the end of the day I have a bounce around day and I'm exhausted so I work with my assistant I know my energy level I know my cadence I don't get it right a lot of the times I overdo it but I schedule what it is that I want to do so that it's already in there yeah I by the way that, I've noticed that because I was going to say help her brother out because I have that exact same problem which is that the the creative the idea that distracts you and and of course, because it's an idea, it's appealing. So therefore, you want to spend time on it. Yeah. And while you're doing that, then none of this other stuff over here gets done. And, and, and I'm, as you said that about blocking the time out, even if it's free time, but just to have it blocked out. I like that. And you said it, and I'd like you to say it again. I'm just trying to remember how you said it. It was that it wasn't that time, you had so no time, time. Time blocking is a calendar strategy. You can Google it and find some articles okay. in one in which you you block you block 100 percent of your calendar into chunks but it's kind of like an asset allocation strategy so this is mm. you know this is my free time this is my meeting time this is my exercise like 
and, and so you can't, you know, this is my, one of the things I have GSD get stuff done, we'll say on my calendar, like people can't take that. I say, look, you guys grab all of that time. I can't deliver the book. I can't deliver the answer you need to that. I can't deliver the comp plan. Like I actually need <laughs> the time that is not meetings. So, so I've decided basically, I don't use Calendly. I think all of that stuff of like letting people jump onto your calendar, like my assistant is the gatekeeper. And actually if something happens where a day gets out of control, like the portfolio gets out of balance, like she will rebalance it. She will say to me, you know, there was an emergency meeting with the investor that you had to take, but, but I realized that that was mean you were gonna have seven hours of meetings that day. And I know that when you do that, you're absolutely face planning. So I'm gonna move these other three things two weeks out. That's why I never touch any of those automated calendar things because I don't I don't think at the executive level they can you, you know you need an asset allocation strategy and you need someone rebalancing because it's always it's always fluid. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So, it's great for you, sales. Like again, if you're a yeah. salesperson, you're like want to call me here. I, I don't think it's great yeah. for executives. Yeah, I, I've actually found I, I use there's a calendar app. It's not Calendly. It's another one. And you can create several profiles. So for example, for my podcasts, I can create a profile that says, I don't want to do any more than one per day yeah. and no more than three per week, for example. And so if I'm scheduling that, it defines, it, it sets parameters. And then if it's, uh, it's training time, for example, that will have a different profile. So that, that works quite well for me, but I, what well, it does leave gaps though. And that's kind of, I still think I need to work the machine on the learning is look, the machine learning is going to get there. It's just not, it's not yeah. there yet, but yeah, yeah. They, you're going to be able to set all this stuff and, and it's going to, yeah, yeah I, I think that that technology will come to everyone sooner rather than yeah. later. So what do you do to relax? Uh, you know, I try to do more meditation, but as someone who, for me, relaxation actually comes from the expansion of, of energy. So I try to, run, bike, get outside, ski in the winter. Like those are the things that uh, I, I'm not great at relaxing. So it's more about enjoyment. Like for me, skiing a run and then sitting in the chairlift. And I actually have a thing now where it's a couple of times with COVID, you know, you have to take a lot of these chairlifts, not with people. 10 minute chair ride, I'll close my eyes and meditate on the way up. It's awesome. Then I get, I get, I get both. So I've been doing some chairlift meditations this winter. Okay. Um... In terms of the future, Robert, what's next? What are the kind of things that are, are catching your attention? Yeah, we're, we're you know, we partnered with a, a, a capital partner uh, at the end of last year, um, did a couple acquisitions. So we're really on a global expansion. We're learning as a team how to sort of focus mm. on, on M&A and looking at those opportunities on how to build out our suite of services. So it's a challenge for all of us to, you know, step up the next level of doubling for our company is going to be the same amount of growth from seven years. Um, so, mm. you know, new challenges, new learnings, and, and we're all actually really working as a team to one of our mantras, we're taking a step up and we're talking about the why and the what, but not the how. Uh, we're really trying to, you know, get the people on our teams to work on the how. Yeah. Uh, you've read a number of books. Um, what for you was the most interesting? Um, yeah, the, the, the process of I actually wrote the Friday Forward book first. No one was interested in it because it was a compilation of stories. It actually forced me down the process to write Elevate uh, by rethinking what was it about these stories. Basically, I started a note to my team uh, six years ago that was just about getting better, personal improvement, something we were remote, 40 people each Friday. 
people started to share it outside the company. It got there were some articles written, uh, and, and and now there's two hundred thousand people in sixty countries that have signed up for that note. So, I went to write the compilation book, and I got pushed by an agent and said, "Look, what's the story behind these?" And that that led to Elevate and the framework of of capacity building, uh, and then I ended up getting a platform and being really successful book and saying, I want to release the Friday Ford book anyway. And they kind of, they kind of go together, but uh, yeah, that process of sort of re-engineering the lessons of Friday Ford into like, what, what, what was this about? What was the framework of that? I had improved my life, that we had grown our business and our people and that all these Mm. people were reading these messages around the world. And, and that led me to something in elevate called capacity building, which is again, the process of sort of how we get better. And what with the Friday Forward? Who are you writing that for? Was it for you or for your employees? <laughs> that, I've never been asked that question, but it's a good question. It was both. It was for me. It was like a part of a good morning routine where I was told to read and write and be reflective. And it was kind of like, all right, well, why am I? I'm not loving. They said read something positive, and I was like, I, I, some of these quote books were a little too rainbow and unicorn for me. So I decided again in a way better. Like I'm going to write this about a cool story or something getting better, but. I would joke that it's like spicy chicken soup for the soul. It's challenging. It's provocative. It pushes people to kind of think about a little bit about where they can be better or do differently. Um, And yeah, so I I, look, it helped me clarify my thoughts on something. And I thought it could help people in the organization. And then eventually it started. And I get emails from people all around the world each week. I've never met saying I just shared this with my family or my team or this was super helpful. And, you know, particularly during the pandemic. So that's been really fun to see. So two things pop into my mind. First of all, what's the URL where people can get this? Because I can imagine people listening to this being really curious to to dip into that. And, and yeah, and you, you can go to FridayFWD.com or, or there's a link for Friday Forward right on Robert Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R.com. Okay, and I'll put a link in here in yeah. the video and then in the, in the show notes. And then the, the other question I had about it was, where then do you come up with the content, the ideas? Because... Other than stopping when you're running, I get that. I, I know, like I know that. running is, is brilliant. I mean, last week me. I had a burst of, like, two weeks ago I struggled with one, and then last week I had a burst of like four. I was listening to, a lot of time I'm listening to a podcast, and there's one little discussion in that podcast with someone that provokes a whole theme or something something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I probably have a list of 200 ideas on there. That, what works best is uh, a, a, a current story that ties to the theme. So sometimes I will have, like, for instance, I'll, I, uh, this week's, I have been wanting to write about um, uh, 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 the notion of uh, uh, positive intent has come up a lot in the last couple of months. And then there's just a great example of, of a, an athlete in the US who said something anti-Semitic. A Jewish athlete responded publicly to him and said, look, I'm sure you didn't mean to say this, Let's grab dinner. I'd like to explain this to you. And it would, so it was just the perfect example of what it looks like when you kind of hold positive intent. And so it just came together this week mentally for me. Okay. So it's, yeah, and, and that's it. Like it's just a spark from somewhere. You don't sit down and try to come up with a list of 10 things that you want to speak about. No, it's usually a spark or an idea. Look, my brain is now conditioned to start thinking oh. about it on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, knowing I need one on Tuesday. And I have a list of, all these ideas I've written down and some of them don't interest me anymore. Sometimes I don't even remember. I can't determine what I was writing based on the note. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, I, I haven't, I, I'm, I'm now at like 270 weeks. I haven't run out of ideas yet. Speaking of running out of ideas or running, no pun intended. If you were to stop running in the morning or cycling, any kind of exercise, yeah. how much of your creativity would be wiped out? 
Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not creative when I'm exhausted. Like I, this goes to physical capacity. You know, my mm. elevate framework. I think, you know, for me, it's 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 adrenaline. You know, it's new places that that drives a lot of creativity. That's been off the table for a year. So, <laughs> you know, you need to get outside and do that. Like I don't like running, but I love how I feel after I run. Um, so mm. it's like I don't enjoy the practice. You know, they say if you want to be great, you need to enjoy the practice. But like, I can tell when I run and when I haven't run. Yeah, but in terms of when you run, because I know I did this for 10 years before I had, a, I had to stop with a back problem, and I found that when you're running, it was just the ideas would flow. And that yeah, well, I, I often listen to podcasts when I'm running. Because, okay. So it does, because I'm trying to distract myself to be able to run in terms of that. So I listen to music or podcasts. I, I probably should run more um, with, with nothing on, but, but, uh, that's more when I'm walking, but yeah, running, I actually use, I listen to podcasts because to me, it's great. I can run, I can get exercise and I can basically have a cool class while I'm running. Okay. What are your top three favorite podcasts or even um, your top one? The, uh, I, the ones I listen to the most are Tim Ferriss. Um, I just think he has a, an incredible guest. I love the performance space. Uh, and I also love how, how I built this, uh, Guy Raz. And just, I think, you know, you always hear these stories of, oh, this company and this and six months later, a billion dollars. And, you know, he gets to all of those near death, like really bad months when the whole thing almost went under. And, 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 and you really understand kind of what it takes to get through those times. So I always love hearing those stories. Mm. Yeah. I, I, what, what is it about those stories of those near death stories that resonates with you? Because I think it's when you get down to the core resolve and resilience and realizing that all these narratives and luck and timing aren't, aren't you know, uh, of, of just being easy aren't true. And, and so to me, those are like the case studies and like, what do you do in a hard decision? And when do you want to when do you want to hang it up or when do you want to keep going under certain conditions or decisions? Mm. Do those near death experiences, because every founder, you, you there is that curve where it's you know the, the the darkest hour is just before the dawn yeah is does it keep coming back or is it sort of okay we've been through that phase and now we're in a different phase yeah i mean that's one of the dangers is we're often you know if you, if you believe in what got you there won't get you here like you you, you might be this is my friday for the you might be carrying that armor or that playbook or that thing that saved you four years ago that's just not relevant anymore right you know you were bootstrapped and whatever and you're so you're always pinching every penny and now you have an investor and a ton of capital but you're still operating from that scarcity mindset not an abundance mindset and so so sometimes there are great lessons to learn back mm. on and sometimes like whatever you're 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 still solving for yesterday's crisis i think yeah yeah i guess so what i'm hearing is that so the behaviors need to change but core characteristics traits grit perseverance determination those don't they they get enhanced through the process yeah there's never a time i think COVID shows where you should deviate from your company's values or your personal values like i think actually like when it's darkest those are the things that will put you towards a decision that you can live with both I, I think the five minute rule like five minutes later five days later and five years later um, because I think that's where people struggle is they the first they, they, they often want to abandon their values look there a lot of people ran into financial trouble like there was different ways to deal with that right there was screwing your partners you know and saying screw you it's bad and there was having honest conversations and working through things and doing your and, and that's the stuff six months later when it bounces back that people remember. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and by the way, I am now ultra, ultra conscious that I am bumping up against a time block in your calendar that's somebody else's time block. So a final question for you is when, when that time comes and you, you depart the, the, this mortal world um, and there's a book written about you, what would the title be? making it better or finding a better way. I always say like the contribution that I would want to make is that people who I was involved with organizations said that somehow they were better for having worked with me or known me or otherwise. So something in that title would work. That's the first line of the eulogy, I think. Yeah. That, Excellent. That's actually where I came up with that. I was asked in a leadership thing years ago to do the eulogy exercise and man, that gets you really focused. Interesting. I, I, by the way, I said that I didn't know that. That's a, it is an interesting exercise, isn't it? Yeah, if you want to understand your personal values, you know, yeah, try, try writing what, what, what you want people to say about you at your funeral. Wow. Yeah, I saw somewhere yesterday, and believe it or not, I was on TikTok, and it was somebody said, there's only two people you need to make proud, and they're not your parents. It's 80-year-old you and 8-year-old you. Yeah. I thought about it, I thought, that's probably quite profound. That's, I think that's well said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Robert will leave it there. I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been absolutely a joy, fascinating, and I wish you every success. Not that you need it, you got it. And uh, thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Paul.